like the analogy that I use in gut feelings in the book is that if somebody sees themselves as an old jalopy, like an old beat up lemon car, how are they going to fuel themselves? Where, how are they going to park? How are they going to drive? How are they going to take care of it when it comes to going to the mechanic? Probably not going to go to the mechanic very often. But when you see yourself as a Lamborghini or a Tesla or whatever, a Mercedes or a BMW, that's going to influence how you treat yourself. And people need to see themselves for the high-end car that they are. The big question is this. In a world of fake Instagram models and bad diets, how do real people achieve their fitness goals? We are an army of hardworking women changing their lives through fitness and health. Wherever you are at on your journey, we have the answers to how to make working out and eating well a part of your life. Join us in changing the dialogue for women everywhere. Welcome to the Thick Thighs Save Lives podcast. Hey guys, we have a great guest for you today. We have Dr. Will Cole, the author of Gut Feelings. And you're going to love this interview because he not only centers around food and how to maximize your gut health, but also just like feeling good, setting healthy boundaries, mindfulness, like the whole entire thing, everything surrounding wellness, which is what we're really looking for when we think about nutrition and the best way to maximize. He worked a decade as a functional medicine expert and his specialty is in inflammation and he has a term he's coined shameflammation. And this is something that you're going to see in chronic health issues, autoimmune disorders, depression, the whole IBS, the whole thing. And his work is really, really important. And I think that everyone alive on this planet right now can identify with some of the issues that Dr. Cole is going to talk about on today's episode. And we're going to give you some tips on how to really maximize your gut health and have that work for your whole life. So enjoy this one. He was amazing. Hi guys, and welcome back to the Thick Die Save Lives podcast. I'm Kelsey. And I'm Rachel, and we have an amazing guest for you today, guys. We have Dr. Will Cole, who is going to absolutely blow your mind with all kinds of gut knowledge and food knowledge and his own shameflammation, which is um, a term he coined. And he is going to absolutely give you everything you need to know about how to maximize your gut health. So, um, Will, thank you for being with us. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your background and like what led you down the path of functional medicine? Sure. So I grew up always interested in health and wellness. I was a, in hindsight, I think about it, a strange teenager. I, my first job was at the finish line, you know, the shoe store, selling tennis shoes. And I use, I use my paycheck to go to the health food store to buy the latest superfood I've read about. Just, I was a voracious researcher in clinical nutrition and wellness and kind of biohacking before biohacking was a thing. And then that evolved to wanting me wanting to be formally trained in this. So I went to an integrative medicine school in California, Southern California University of Health Sciences, where there's MDs and DCs and DOs and acupuncturists and nurse practitioners, all kind of learning their craft in health sciences. So I graduated knowing I wanted to be in functional medicine. My postdoctorate education and training is what's is in functional medicine. So it's through the Institute for Functional Medicine. And that's what the, the Cleveland Clinic has a functional medicine center. All the doctors there are trained through the Institute for Functional Medicine. So that's who's trained myself and my team. And we started one of the first functional medicine telehealth centers 13 plus years ago at this point. So that's my day job. And that's my focus is my really figure out what are the complex pieces to people's health puzzles. So we deal a lot with predominantly women, people that are struggling with hormonal problems, autoimmune problems, digestive issues, brain health issues like anxiety and depression and fatigue 
those are my people. I want to figure out why they feel the way that they do. What's keeping them back? Like why it's not enough to just say, well, you're just getting older or, you know, you're just depressed. So, and, uh, who wouldn't be a little depressed if they didn't feel well and they know intuitively their body and nobody's listening to them. So there's a lot of medical gaslighting with these people. There's a lot of people that are told everything's fine, even though they know their gut instinct, things are not fine. So it's my job to figure out what's going on. So that's how I got here. I love that. And first of all, thank you for the work that you're doing because so many people can relate to just feeling gaslit or feeling like they can't find the source of their symptoms or being able to pinpoint like, how can I just feel better on a daily basis? And that was something that really drew me to a lot of your content was that it centers around just like feeling good and not just like solely focused on food, but like, how can we look at your mental health? How can we create boundaries, mindfulness, like all kind of an all encompassing approach, which I just love. So can you tell maybe our listeners, what is the gut brain connection? Sure. The gut and brain, when I say gut, I mean the small intestines, large intestines, the stomach, the digestive system and the brain are when babies are growing in their mother's womb, they're formed from the same fetal tissue. So when they're, they're growing together over those 10, 9, 10 months, right? And they are inextricably linked for the rest of our life through what's known as in their scientific literature, in the medical journals, as the gut-brain axis or the connection between the two. And there's so many connections there. I mean, there's, I mean, from a microbiome standpoint, it's the term for the trillions of bacteria in our gut. Depending on the study that you look at, we have upwards of 100 trillion bacteria and we have, you know, 10, 30 trillion uh, human cells, it's, it's, it's significantly less. We are about 10 times more bacteria than human. And we are sort of a sophisticated host for the microbiome, which we co-evolved with, but it influences so much of our life. Our microbiome, which is not us, it's the trillions of bacteria in our gut, influences 75% of the immune system. It influences, it, uh, the gut is where 95% of serotonin is made which is our happy neurotransmitter, 50% of dopamine, our pleasure neurotransmitter is made in the gut and stored in the gut. So there's lots of reasons why, even physically, if you think about it, the gut even resembles the brain, but the, the, the intestines resemble the brain. But the, the gut is known in the scientific literature as the second brain. So it's through how these neurotransmitters are made and the influence in the the influence that the bacteria are having, they produce metabolites that influence these neurotransmitter productions. And there's different bacterial colonies, either deficiencies of good bacteria or overgrowth of some opportunistic or pathogenic bacteria that are linked in the medical literature as causative, like, components as to why people have anxiety and depression and fatigue and many other health issues, not just brain health issues, but also the fact that 75% of the immune systems, their inflammation is a product of the immune system. There's a whole field of research called the cytokine model of cognitive function. Cytokines are pro-inflammatory cells. So it's researchers looking at how does inflammation impact how our brain works. So many multifaceted reasons why all of these things tend to work on what's called the vagus nerve. The neurotransmitters that are produced in the gut, they actually, they don't pass through the blood-brain barrier as we understand it. it. What they do is actually work upon GI motility and what's called the vagus nerve, which is the largest cranial nerve in the body. And it is responsible for nervous system regulation, largely the parasympathetic aspect of the autonomic nervous system, which is the resting, digesting. It's our calming anti-anxiety, nervous system regulation aspect, which many people have what's called poor vagal tone or weak vagal, vagal tone, which a lot of my work is to strengthen that vagus nerve, to regulate the nervous system. And beyond the nervous system was something called the neuroimmunoendocrine system, which is the intersection between the nervous system and the immune system, i.e. inflammation, and the endocrine system hormones. So that's what I work on a lot with patients. And what I also talk about in Gut Feelings in the latest book is really that neuroimmunoendocrine system and what can we do to, to optimize it. 
Wow. I mean, you know, it's complex, but then yeah. there's like that level of complexity. <laughs> <laughs> then there's like, what the heck is he talking about? Level yeah. of complexity? <laughs> no, but you know what? It, it's, I think it's comforting to a lot of people to understand that it's just not as simple as like, sometimes like, well, don't eat cheese. Stop eating so much cheese. You know, it's, it's so much more than cheese. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, like you said in the beginning, so many people have been gaslit into thinking that this is like something that they're in full control of. And if they would just stop eating this thing, or if they would just go on this restrictive diet, they could heal themselves. And it's just, I think it's comforting to hear that there are a lot of things at play and that truly understanding that needs to probably be done with a professional, but that there is always hope. And um, I wanted to ask you about in your opinion, the top like psychological disruptors when it comes to gut brain connection, like what, sh what are people looking for there? Yeah. And that's a major part of gut feelings. The book is, is that side of things. And that's why I called it in part that I called the book gut feelings. It's, it's the duality. It's the gut and the feelings, right? The physiological and that's stuff that I deal with clinically. And we run labs and look at blood tests and underlying gut problems or nutrient deficiencies, or we do a lot with mold toxicity and chronic Lyme disease, all of these biotoxins or environmental toxins like glyphosate. How will those things, the gut side of gut feelings, how does that impact our mood? How does that impact inflammation? How does that impact a lot of stuff in our body and how we feel? But the feelings side of gut feelings is just as important, if not more important for some of us to deal with, to heal. And you have to have a both and not an either or approach to wellness. And if you deal with just the physiological side, just the physical stuff, and you just work out or eat clean or whatever, take the right supplements, do the latest biohack, it's going to be like moving you in the positive direction. But if you have a big component of the feeling stuff not dealt with, I see people all the time that are stuck at this plateau. So both the physiological and the psychological, both the gut and the feelings have to be dealt with to deal with your complex health issues. Or even if you're not even severely going through a health crisis, even if you just know intuitively my whatever, my background anxiety, my bloating, my food sensitivities, some things that are you can still go to work, but they're not you're not living your best life because you're kind of kept back from these things that are just damp they're dampening or they're, they're they are inhibitors of you feeling your best but the, to answer your question the psychological side what we've what we're feeding our head and our heart is just as important as what we're feeding our body with breakfast lunch and dinner and the things that i see the most i mean chronic stress would be probably the top of my top of the list as far as like in the here and now and that's when you mention things like healthy boundaries or i talk about jomo in the book which is the joy of missing out and cultivating these practices that are nothing new but are very almost radical to modernity you know the idea i talk about huga and how in scandinavian countries they kind of kind of brought in these comforting, nourishing, grounding practices of just unplugging, getting by by the fire, under a blanket, by a good book, lighting a candle, like just not always go, go, go. And this hustle culture and burnout is seen as this badge of honor. That's a problem. And it's, it's weakening our vagus nerve because our sympathetic aspect of the nervous system is so overactive. That fight or flight, fleet, freeze, stress state is just normalcy and for many people and what's happened over time is we've overtrained one aspect of our autonomic nervous system and we're really undertraining another aspect of our autonomic nervous system and we're paying the price of it in the form of chronic health problems so and then the other component of beyond current stress like jobs relationship over scheduling that kind of stuff is unresolved trauma which is a lot of the book a lot of our work with clinically is Unresolved trauma, we have every telehealth patient fill out what's called an ACE questionnaire and get an ACE score, which is adverse childhood events or experiences. And it's looking at things like, was there physical abuse growing up? Was there sexual abuse growing up? Was there neglect growing up? The, the higher your ACE score, you're more likely, statistically by research standards, are more likely to have 
autoimmune issues, metabolic issues, trouble losing weight, problems with anxiety, auto issues, potentially. Not that that's the only component because it's multifaceted, but it certainly is an ingredient. That's the feeling stuff of side of gut feelings. And that when you mentioned that at the top of the conversation, you talked about shame inflammation. It's sort of my made up word for the research around the mind body connection and how things like shame and things that cause shame, like unresolved trauma and stress, when you don't feel like you're good enough and you're not present with your family because you're stressed. There's a lot of body shame. There's a lot of shame around food in these conversations. And how is that impacting our biochemistry? Or how does shame impact inflammation? So it's huge, but it's a lot more to unpack because it's more linear and prescriptive for me to say, okay, these foods have been shown to do this, this, and this, like have less of these, have more of these, like focus on these foods that love you back. It is more linear, it is more, okay, it's, it's cut and dried. There's still a lot of bio-individuality with it, but it's a little bit more straightforward. On the other side, how do you tell somebody to not have shame? How do you like, just don't have that shame. Don't have that next time. I don't have that unresolved trauma. Just drop it. It doesn't work like that. So we have to do a lot more on work, a lot more work and a lot more unpacking and disentangling these issues that are deeply rooted on a cellular level, on a neural pathway level. But it's work that is profoundly important because it's from that work that you can really move past that plateau and heal fully. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up because there's a lot of things there, but for especially people who listen to a health and fitness podcast or have made health a priority in their life, there's a lot of like type A personalities in there who get sucked into something like hustle culture and want to do everything within their power to live a healthier lifestyle or, you know, it's a lot of like cut and dry, like remove these foods, do this workout, blah, blah, blah. But when you start to talk about like, Hey, what's the mental health aspect of this? Like, what is, like, have you thought about an age? score. And when it comes to things like that and talking about how mental health plays such an important part and what are some other things that we can do to limit your chronic stress, like unplug, those are just as important as your workouts. And they really need to be put in place like some of your workouts. Yeah. You get to the gym at five 30 every day. How many days a week do you unplug? How many days are, are you really, um, you know, looking at your, your stress levels and like how you might be able to adjust some of those habits that are really causing you to feel sick essentially, or feeling, you know, inflammation throughout your body. Um, I wanted to ask you, what are some top signs someone has a dysregulated nervous system? Like, what are some of the things that they can look for? So both the physiological and the psychological side of things can dysregulate that neuroimmunoendocrine system. So, and by nervous system dysregulation, I, what we're typically talking about is an overactive sympathetic, fight or flight stress, underactive parasympathetic, resting, digesting. So a lot of um, autoimmune problems, chronic fatigue syndrome, anxiety anxiety, depression, fatigue, hormonal problems, all have some sort of nervous system dysregulation. So you could be diagnosed with one of those issues that I just mentioned, or you could just be undiagnosed and feel like uh, wired and tired is how many people describe it. I feel anxious, but exhausted. I have a lot of insatiable cravings for food. I have trouble winding down at night. Um, I, ha I have background anxiety. I have digestive problems, bloating. I have sluggish GI motility. I have IBS issues. I have some hormonal problems. I have trouble losing weight. Those are some signs that there's that a nervous system dysregulation is a component. Not that that's the only piece of the puzzle, but it is certainly a part of it. Of when you look at the nervous side, the nervous part of the neuroimmunoendocrine axis. So that's what I would say. But look, it's both physiological and the psychological side of it. Like the stress, the unresolved trauma, these things that cause shame inflammation, they will. This stuff is literally stored in our bodies. They're stored in ourselves. It's impacting something called methylation, which is this big interconnected biochemical superhighway of different pathways that impact inflammation levels, impact hormone production, impact neurotransmitter production, impact many different things in the body. And just as much as a food does. I mean, when you say the, the cliche of we are what we eat, it's true. I mean, the foods we eat influence our biochemistry. It's influencing hormonal signaling. It's impacting the gut-brain axis. It's impacting digestive health and the cascade of pathways from 
the foods that we eat. So every food we eat, every meal we eat is a chance to influence our biochemistry. And beyond just the influencing, it's actually made, like our cells are made up of the foods that we eat over time. So it is the raw material that actually makes up our cells. But the psychological side of it is true as well. The, the stress, the shame, the unresolved trauma will also influence, influence these pathways just as much. So I actually call it in the book, these metaphysical meals. Like it's easier. Like you said, it's more prescriptive with breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And maybe look at your macros or look at nutrition or look at deficiencies in optimizing that or calorie intake, whatever. But what are we feeding our head and our heart? Because that influences our biochemistry just as much as a meal does. So, yeah, it, that's those are some signs of nervous system dysregulation. And those are the components as to why it's dysregulated in the first place. That was a that was quite a list of things that I think. 99.9% of people identified themselves in, which, I mean, that's sort of, when you think about it, you have to like think about what a role culture is going to play in this. Because if 99.9% .9 of people are finding themselves somewhere in a list of dysregulation, then there's a, there's a component of that that's going to be cultural. And, um, you know, it's hard, I think, to sort of see that, recognize it and separate from it because it, like you said, like hustle culture and badges of honor for things like being overstressed are so common that like not wanting that would sort of be going against the grain. Yeah. As I say in the book, like it, this is a, actually a radical act in our culture. It is a scene as radical and depending on how much you have to do and who you hang around with it can actually seem really radical in many ways having agency over your health asking questions doing things the what we're talking about is gonna ruffle some feathers sometimes i see it all the time but it's actually more of a commentary on our culture than the person making those changes because how far have we fallen where someone wanting to reclaim their health and be healthy and live in a more of a sane way. Why is that radical? Why is that considered weird? Right? <laughs> it's really not. They're just being, they're actually living the way that humans would have lived with lived, how they would have lived for thousands and thousands of years, but it's not shirking modernity. It's not living Amish and like off the grid and like not do, you can still live in a modern world but live in a more of a sane way. And that goes back to that con those concepts of healthy boundaries. Like what does a healthy boundary look like around technology and foods and relationships and our schedule? These things matter because it's, it's, it's feedback for our biochemistry. So yeah, it is, it is radical. It is against the grain. It is upstream for sometimes, but it's a very brave act when your life's on the line. And I see people all the time that have to make these hard decisions. But you know what's cool is that when people make these brave decisions to do things differently and not just because that's the way everybody else does it, it ends up being infectious in the best of ways, right? I mean, it like you actually, by being a light, other people want to get in on the light. So, and you get a new friend, friend group sometimes, or it's the same friend group and you really make a positive change for your whole friend group instead of like going out and drinking and, you know, doing all the, whatever, you know what I mean? Like just unhealthy habits. They are like, they're doing really healthy habits together and a community is important too. That's for sure. I want to definitely get into what is really your specialty, which is inflammation. It's like a hot topic right now. We're just starting to understand like how it affects the brain, how it affects the mood. Whereas before it was sort of thought on like only sort of a musculoskeletal level where it was like, that's where inflammation causes you problems. But you've done a really lot of work talking about how it actually influences your brain and your mood and, and talk about like shame inflammation and, you know, can we just zero in on that for a second and, yeah. and talk a little bit ab about your philosophy on that? Sure. So inflammation, it's not inherently bad. Uh, it's a product of the immune system. So it fights off viruses. It kills off bacteria. It heals wounds. It's their defendant. It's their defender. It's a defense mechanism. It's a, it is needed. The human species would not be here without healthy measured inflammation levels. But the problem is when there's a 
breaking of what's called the Goldilocks principle, which is basically a homeostasis, right? It's not too high, not too low, but just right. So inflammation is subject to that law because you don't want excess inflammation. You don't want deficiency of inflammation either, immunodeficiency. That's not good. Um, same with everything else in the body pretty much. I mean, you don't want a deficiency of microbacteria in our gut. You don't want an overgrowth of bacteria in our gut. I see people that have both of those. You want bacteria where you want it to be for proper human function. And same with hormones. You don't want deficiency. You don't want a dominance and a excess of hormones either. So all of this is, this is important to know this because inflammation is easily you're right. It's not really, it's a nebulous term. People don't really understand what they're talking about. And they think of that migraines, they think of the sore joints, which that is true. That's inflammatory. But what I'm talking about here is chronic inflammation. That's sort of the, the forest fire that burns in perpetuity. That's a problem. There's a time for acute inflammation and then for it to calm back down when someone's injured or is going through an illness and the body needs to do that. Healthy, measured, appropriate inflammation. Most people have inappropriate inflammation where it's just going too high for too long and that is problematic. That is the commonality. Chronic inflammation is the commonality between just about every health problem under the sun to from all the things that I mentioned. All the things that I mentioned are inflammatory. So metabolic issues, type 2 diabetes to brain health issues like anxiety and depression fatigue, hormonal problems because the receptor sites are not signaling properly. So hormones are not, um, sig the communication lines between systems are off because of in part inflammation. So I can go on and on. It's really pretty much every chronic health problem we face as a world today has an inflammation, has inflammation as a component of it, or it's the main, main actual definition of it. It's a chronic inflammatory problem. So, but all of these problems exist on a spectrum. So they, researchers estimate that when somebody is diagnosed with a autoimmune problem or uh, something like type two diabetes or heart disease or cancer or something like that, right? It's about four to 10 years prior on average, according to researchers, that things were brewing on this inflammation spectrum. That for most of us, in most cases, by the time somebody's diagnosed, it's been going on for a while. And you can catch the, these things on labs, you can catch these things by checking in with your body and not gaslighting yourself or allowing yourself to be gaslit. So you can actually say, what's my body telling me? What are these check engine lights? Like, why is this check engine light on in my life? Whether it's the anxiety or the fatigue or the digestive problem or the trouble losing weight or the hair loss or the skin issues. What is my body telling me with these check engine lights? So I don't ignore it and I don't put it on the back burner. But I realize what my body's trying to tell me something. And we can take action no matter where you're at on that inflammation spectrum. What can you do today to start moving the needle in the positive direction? And that's what we do. That's what I do with patients. It's no matter where they're at, from like mild optimization issues to diagnosable things. What can we do to, today to start moving the needle in, the, in a more positive direction? You know, I love the way you put that because I think a lot of us and for everyone listening, like, is your check engine light on? What are the signs that maybe your check engine light has been on? Because I think a lot of people are going around with this check engine light all the time and just keep driving it into the ground. And then when a tire blows out or something, they're like, well, it's just that, you know, I must have run, ran over a nail or like any of these other things when it's like, it's been on for a bit. And it's, there, there were so many signs prior to maybe needing to check that out. I also love that you put the, when it comes to inflammation, anything that our body is producing has a positive impact somewhere along the way. You know, it's, it serves a purpose. And we have in this like culture where we're all trying to pinpoint whatever the thing is that's wrong, it could be inflammation at one point and not realizing like inflammation does serve a purpose within the body, but anything to an excess puts you out of balance. And the goal is to always be within balance when it comes to setting boundaries, when it comes to, you know, your work-life balance, like it, it's all about balance and not just pinpointing like carbs, inflammation, whoever is the newest enemy that has come into the health and fitness space that we've decided is like the wrong thing. We're going to all eliminate it, but all of these things serve a purpose, but really need to be addressed in the way of, is it too high? Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. And it's not, it's not good or bad. It's about the context of it, right? And even with working out, I think that's another good example. Like working out actually 
it's breaking down muscle. It's creating actually some inflammation to build it up stronger. That's normal. That's healthy. That's a hormetic effect on the body, right? Good stress. So there's, there's a, even stress can be good, but it's what, what's the context around that stress? Is it out of alignment? Because a lot of this is boiled down to what researchers call an epigenetic genetic mismatch or like a mismatch, a chasm between our DNA, which hasn't changed in 10,000 years, and the world around us, which has changed so much. So it's just saying, what can we do today to start decreasing that mismatch between how we're living our life? And that could be a relationship with technology. It could be the foods we're consuming. It could be many things, activity level. All of these things influence our biochemistry. Yeah. And a combination of all of those things. And I'm glad you brought up chronic stress because you said, I think it was in your book that chronic stress is the ultimate drunk junk food. Why is that? It's probably the ultimate drunk food too. <laughs> People are drunk on stress for sure. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, but it's the ultimate uh, junk food. Yeah, so it's... It's one of those things that it's just people normalize it, right? And they don't even realize it. They're not even realizing they're consuming it in a, in a regular basis. And the human species, in some ways, I think it's important to differentiate this, right? I think in some ways, we've lost a lot of resilience. And the human species wouldn't be here without some grit. And I think in some ways, we've lost that grit in some ways, right? We don't know how to actually handle the stress that matters. <laughs> we, we, we are really poor at handling the stress that matters, but we're over consumers of the stress that's really killing us. So I think it's really uh, important to be aware of that and what we are consuming on a daily basis, not just from a food standpoint, but what are we feeding our head and our hearts on a daily basis what's this ruminating input of information that we are consuming on a daily basis and um that is a, it's problematic and i think the way that we live our lives is really we're paying the price for it that it's awakening these genetic predispositions that are being that have been lying dormant there for ten thousand plus years because our genetics really haven't changed so why are we seeing this epidemic rise in mental health issues why are we seeing this rise of autoimmune problems and metabolic issues and type 2 diabetes and cancer and heart disease it's not genetics it's what we are triggering our genetics with that is what is triggering these problems and all it's just i mean there's it's multifaceted it's about all these things we're talking about but stress is implicated in all that stuff chronic stress is implicated in all these things so it's you it's you'd be hard-pressed to find a chronic health problem the reasons why people are going to their doctors the reason why people don't feel well stress is implicated in just about everything and how can we have a healthier relationship with stress right how can we manage these things in positive ways a lot of it is healthy boundaries and i think that more and more people are having these conversations around healthy boundaries. I think it's important because I think we've overconsumed a lot of things uh, in our culture. But the ultimate relationship you want to have healthy boundaries with is yourself. And ultimately, from that, a lot of stuff will fall into place. And it's not really about other people at all. It's about yourself. Like, how are you going to consume the foods? that you're eating what are you eating foods that love you back or not and it's not about morality or a moral failure it's are we having healthy boundaries with foods and as i say in the book like continuing to eat foods that don't love you back it's like staying in a toxic relationship and wondering why you're still miserable and avoiding foods that don't love you back is not restrictive it's not toxic diet culture it's self-respect and i think that's stressful on the body like eating foods that don't love you back is stressful on the body and same with relationships like what's the relationship we have if we don't have self-respect what are what are the things we're going to let in our inner circle and a lot of people have these people that are really for the relationship is toxic not making the other person the enemy but that relationship is toxic and it's impacting your health and i see people I always tell patients, it's from Eckhart Tolle, if you know the author Eckhart Tolle, but he always says, in any given situation, do I need to change, leave, or accept the situation? Pick one of the three, because if you're not picking one of the three, you're choosing chaos for yourself and everyone around you. And you talk about stress. I mean, many people have inner resistance and they're not picking one of those three things, change, leave, or accept, and they're creating a lot of stress. And it could, that could be applied to a job. It can be applied to a relationship, pretty much every situation in life. And I see people that have, like for like a marriage, for example, 
they either have to go to therapy and try to change it, or they need to be an inner radical acceptance. I see some people that are like, I'm, I can't leave. So I really need to do some inner work to be in radical acceptance because I can't make them change. Or they, some people come with the conclusion that I need to leave. And that also can be applied to a job too. Like, can I change? Can I advocate for myself? Do I need to accept it or leave it? So these are practices, healthy boundary work that will do a lot for stress and the impact on our biochemistry. Yeah, I, I'm so glad that you spoke about it, you know, in a really, truly relatable way. And I think it just goes back to what you said about unresolved trauma and why you screen patients in that way. Because I think that sometimes people do not understand that their unresolved trauma has led them to not having a good relationship with themselves where they don't respect themselves and they don't think they're worth the effort or the time or any, and, and I, you said you work mainly with women. (laughs) So we see this a lot with women that we work with as well, where it's constantly trying to fill from an empty cup and just saying like, I'm last and I'm just not worth the effort because everybody else needs me more. And this is how I show my martyrdom. And there's all kinds of like cultural things there and like unresolved trauma there. But I just, I think a lot of people hear that themselves in that of like, are you, are you avoiding this work? Because somewhere deep down inside, you haven't decided that you're actually worth the work. Yeah. I see that all the time. People feel like they're not worthy of wellness and they, they don't even consciously know that, but it's so ingrained. You're right. It's ingrained culturally. And that's why so much of this is cultivating where I talk about the science of self-compassion, the science of these practices are actually powerful because when you actually cultivate more self-compassion and self-worth, you will naturally want to go to things that love you back. Like you will want to make decisions that love you back. So you're absolutely right. Getting the feeling side of the gut feelings paradigm, paradox or duality actually influences the physiological. When you actually have self-respect and know you're worthy of wellness, you will more likely choose foods that love you back. You will more likely want to have agency over your health. You are more likely to have healthy boundaries and not accept crap from people. So it's so much uh, driven. It's driven by like the analogy that I use in gut feelings in the book is that if somebody sees themselves as an old jalopy, like an old beat up lemon car, how are they going to fuel themselves? How are they going to park? How are they going to drive? How are they going to take care of it when it comes to going to the mechanic? Probably not going to go to the mechanic very often. But when you see yourself as a Lamborghini or a Tesla or whatever, a Mercedes or a BMW, that's going to influence how you treat yourself. And people need to see themselves for the high-end car that they are. And that's our, that's our birthright. That's our intrinsic worth as being human beings. And I think a lot of that has to do with that paradigm shift and perspective shift on who you truly are. And from that, right, or positive action will flow. Imagine being like worthy of health. Imagine like that concept is just like, I, I like step one, step one, deem yourself worthy of health. And then like watch everything just kind of get easier when it doesn't come from a place of, I hate myself. Look at this body. It's disgusting. Um, look what I've let myself become. And all of, like, I love the color car analogy. That's so, so good. When it comes to like food peace, how can we achieve this? Is this, a, is this a possibility? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's what a lot of our work is towards. And I will say this, the caveat is it's easier said than done. It's complex. It's nonlinear. And I would say for many people, it's not ever fully done. It's not, you have to be perfect. It's not about perfection. I think understanding that, and there should be a grace and lightness and flexibility through all of this, but it happens for all of our patients over time. Some people turn corners sooner than others, but even if they're not a telehealth patient, that's why I write books and have podcasts and things for people to start raising awareness on this work. That's important that it's back to that earlier statement that I said about this sort of 
tribalism within wellness, quote unquote, or the fitness world or whatever, the culture itself, it, there's so much warring factions. It's like diet culture versus anti-diet culture. It's high carb, low carb, it's paleo, it's vegan, it's keto, whatever. All this stuff is noise. And I really want the person, whoever's listening to this or watching this or reading a book, is to say what works for my body. What works for me? And be your own end of one experiment to really be find out what your body loves. And as I say in the back of the, the book, the back cover of the book, it's a mantra here at the telehealth clinic is you can't heal a body you hate. You cannot shame your way into wellness or obsess your way into health. Try as you might. Because if you do come with that frenetic restricting, punishing mentality around food or exercise or anything that you do within wellness, it's either going to be unsustainable or such a source of dread and obsession that it'll just be miserable. And the stress and anxiety around that thing, even if that thing on paper looks good, your mindset and your heart set around that thing will produce a completely different result that will be a saboteur. And I see people all the time, they're like eating really clean, but they're like stressing about healthy foods. Like that's like the food looks good, but your relationship with food is not good. So um, we need to shift that. Or because of that restriction, like obsession, you are not eating foods that love you back or you're not eating enough of the foods because you're don't realize you're worthy of wellness and you end up fearing food around these things. And there's, it's called orthorexia. It's disordered eating around healthy foods. And there's a lot of people that have that, that we have to start to heal that process. But it's interesting, but it's such a paradigm shift. We want to be nourishing our body with foods that love us back. It's not ever about restriction, but sometimes when you're therapeutically using food for a season, whether someone has digestive problem or autoimmune problem or metabolic issues, what the anti-diet culture world, which is just as toxic as diet culture, in my opinion, where they would say any food change is toxic diet culture. I would say, no, they're missing the mark because avoiding foods that don't love you back isn't restrictive. We just have healthy boundaries with things that don't love us back, whether it's people, foods, or habits or activities. And it's just having the discernment to know the difference. And I love these conversations, healthy boundaries, like stops when it comes about food or alcohol. The reality is, no, these, these relationships matter actually the most. Because from that, we'll actually determine a lot of decision-making that we make in our life. So, I, for example, like foods can look Food protocols can be more tight for a while if you have a lot of food sensitivities, for example, or if a lot of food causes you bloating or makes you not feel good in your body. So on by the outside, by the world standards, the world that's feeding its own health problems will say that's toxic diet culture. But the person that's healing their gut or working on their autoimmune issue would know, no, those foods don't love me back. The goal is just not to stay there. The goal is to heal these things therapeutically, almost like a proverbial cast. So you could keep that cast on for a few months, maybe even longer for a time for some people to start mending. So take that cast off at a certain point, put that sling on and then take the sling off and like live your life. But it's so easy for us to make broad sweeping over generalized statements and really finding out what works for our body, but realizing what works for you today if you're fixing the root cause of why you feel this way in the first place, that should evolve over time. So to give this whole process, as I said earlier, healing is nonlinear to find a place of food peace over time. I talked to a patient of mine right before our conversation here. She lives in Sweden. She's public about being a patient here. It's not like a secret. I'm not breaking any HIPAA stuff, but she's, her name's Rachel Brathen. She's the yoga, yoga girl on Instagram. She's gone through a lot with mold toxicity. And we were talking about this very same thing that all the food she used to have reactions to, and she felt like her body was at war with it. And it was at a certain point, but when we fix these upstream issues, she can now eat lots of food. And she's like, I don't even think I used to be so hyper fixated on food. And like, this was my identity was in this one way of eating. And now she eats foods that love her back, but it's so intuitive and mindful. And she doesn't have the reactions to foods, all the foods anymore, because her body's in a more calm, regulated neuroimmunoendocrine state. So I know that's a long winded answer, but that's kind of my thoughts on food peace.
No, I, I love, actually love your long-winded answer because this is such a complex issue. And every time we're looking for this, like, yes or no answer and not looking at like, well, there's a full scope here and in a journey of healing, your diet might look like this. The foods that you eat might look like this. And that is going to evolve over time. And it's not just going to stay, you know, the same. And you have to be okay. Number one with being, having that evolve over time and being able to say like, these are the foods that I ate while I had my cast on, for example. And now that has evolved into where, you know, you come to it with food peace and intuitive eating. It's just funny because this happened to me over the weekend where like you, like ice cream used to be like a total no go for me. And I used to be like, well, I'm lactose intolerant. And like the way like progression for food and like specific foods that I used to not be able to eat at all has come so far over time that like, I know when I can consume these things and have no problem at all. And like, I like, I'm the only, I can't be put in a category because I'm like, no, like I know that like this feels good for me right now. And I'm, I'm not going to have these adverse reactions with like something that in the past it would be a bad thing for me. Like it would be like a food that didn't love me back, but that isn't a food that didn't love me back forever. Just during, just during one phase. Yeah. I, I, so many people come up with it. They make that their identity. I get it. There's a lot of trauma around food reactions. I understand it full heart, wholeheartedly. And that's an end for some people's orthorexia because it's like, okay, I really, that food didn't love me back. I never want to have that experience again. And there's a lot of stress and anxiety around food. So a lot of the work that we do is actually limbic system retraining and like calming that response, that trauma response around food, because stressing around food will be part of why that flare up happens happens in many cases. Yeah, that's, it's, it's just, it's wild. Like, thank you so much for doing this work and kind of looking at how shame impacts the body and talking to women and everyone about like really how complex, you know, diet, anti-diet culture is. And like, you don't necessarily have to be in one camp or the other. It can be a really complex issue that is very individualized at the end of the day. If you ask someone else that you think they have like this body that you want to attain, it doesn't matter what they eat because their body isn't yours. Like we're not going to eat the same thing, have the same results and feel the same way. Like that's just not how it, that's just no. not how it's going to happen. <laughs> now, if we all ate the same way, worked out the same way, we're still going to all look differently at the end of the day. <laughs> it's not about that. It's about how do we feel on our own skin? Like how, what do our labs look like? What's our energy look like? What's our sleep look like? That's what matters. It's the vibrant wellness that, that matters. And you being the healthiest version of yourself that matters. Before you came on, Kelsey and I were talking about because you had been public about having Gwyneth Paltrow as a as someone who's you've worked with, and there's been like all kinds of controversy. And we were talking about how wild it is that when someone comes out and sort of says, "This is what works for me," how like defensive people get about someone else's body and like the the idea that they would trust their own body and say like no no I've I've lived the some time <laughs> and I've tried some things and I'm telling you that this is for me and that it it immediately is like a a defense mechanism as if someone was trying to tell you that's for you mhm mm yeah, I know. It's it's really the state of our culture, right, on social media where people just have to everybody gives their own opinion on everything. Like it's it's so it's keyboard warrior culture, right? It's things that you'd never say to someone's face that they have so anonymity anonymity that they can go and, and lash out on social media. And the context, like they get their news from clips and not context. And I think that's the big point here is that that controversy, which is really just a state of our world where our ancestors would roll in their graves if they knew that that would made news for 15 minutes. It's like, it does not matter. It does not matter. But people are, it's, I think of that Chris Rock, uh, Netflix special recently of, uh, selective outrage. I think our culture is so steeped in selective outrage. The things that they get up in arms about, should not be and the things they should be up in arms about they're, they're ignoring and i think that you're absolutely right it was an hour-long conversation where we were talking about one person's experience and one person's journey and even and then that was then clipped and taken out of context uh, and even the question that i asked right because it was like okay well 
It didn't seem like they were, she was eating enough food. I did not ask for a breakdown of every meal that you eat. Can you please offer it up to the keyboard warriors, the trolls on TikTok? No, it was, can you give me some things that within your wellness routine? Like show us some of the things that you do. She was giving, okay, these are some of the foods that I eat. This is what I do with this. This is what I do with that. It wasn't a food journal <laughs> people just took yeah. it and ran with it because i mean it's like and then even when she clarified it people don't want to hear it because they'd rather have they're addicted to being offended and addicted to pontificating on social media it's crazy but it's you know what and then the next 15 minutes it'll be something else that they're, they're consuming but we know how the algorithms work right the algorithms work on feeding stories and headlines to people that are more likely to viscerally act so that they serve more negative headlines to people that are more likely to respond with anger and rage. So it's actually sad when you think about it because these people are in many ways victims of the algorithm and they're consuming something. They're consuming information that doesn't love them back and they're binging on it and they're responding to it. And it doesn't feel good to be filled with rage and anger, but that's how most of these people, that's how most of our culture to varying degrees, we all get, can get caught up in it. And it's just hopefully for all of us to be aware of what we're consuming even on social media. I bet all those people have gut issues. I bet, I bet they all have gut issues. <laughs> well, that's the truth. I mean, when you don't feel good, it's like hurt people, hurt people. People that feel like crap act like crap. Yeah. Yep. That's so true. And thank you for bringing that part up too. Guys, you have to get his book, Gut Feelings. And also, well, where can they check you out? Like, where can they find more from you? Because as we talk about what you're consuming on social media, you need to consume more of him <laughs> on social media and wherever else they can find you. So where can our listeners hear more from you? Thank you. I like, I want to be a place of positivity and light on social media. I know that you guys do as well. It's like, that's how social media can be used for good. It's like, how can we connect with people? How can we educate people? How can we empower people? And, you know, if, if, if even if 10% of what I put out there is right for you, I think that's an important thing. Like you don't have to pick up everything we're talking about in functional medicine, but what's resonating with you? What do you need at this point in your health journey? Um, but everything's at drwillcole.com. That's the website, D-R-W-I-L-L-C-O. Le.com and then Instagram at Dr. Will Cole, TikTok, Twitter, Facebook, all, all those places too. But I'm on Instagram the most. Because you know what? The algorithms work in that way too. They work in the, it's like karma. <laughs> it's yeah. like if you're consuming really good positive shit, that's what you're going to see more of. Yeah. So surround yourself with it. Yeah. And I, that's a great thing. I'm follow things that are, are like junk food for your soul. And I think you're right. The algorithm can be actually used for great, great things. Because if you start liking and following things of a certain thing that are positive for you over time, the algorithm will shift and you will see more positive things. You're absolutely right about that. And Will Cole is needing to be in your algorithm, guys. He's got some really great things to say. So thank you for coming on with us. We really appreciate it. Have a great week, guys. Thank you so much for listening to the Thick Thighs Save Lives podcast. If you'd like to join our movement, get in our free app, CVG Nation, available in your app store. We have an amazing community of women, coaches to help you with your movements, challenges, and we give away leggings daily in there. Rachel and I are in there every day, so it's a perfect place to get in touch with us. This podcast is made possible by Constantly Varied Gear, so be sure to check out ConstantlyVariedGear.com. Have an amazing week. Crush your goals.